Hello. Hello. I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. And welcome to This Podcast Doesn't Exist. This is so weird. We're doing this over Zoom right now. I am at my parents' house. I'm currently in my mother's closet. Um, And it is very weird not sitting on a couch with you right now. I know. I feel like we both kind of look like Madame Leota from the mansion. Yeah. And I keep, like, I just feel like I'm... I'm leaning into the microphone. Hopefully this is good. Tell us. I, is this I better? have a feeling. I have a feeling that our audio is a little bit better, but it's only because we each have our own microphone. So we get to hang on to it. Except not because Emma didn't want to hold hers because, quote, my hands would get tired. My hands would get tired. Do some if hand I held push-ups. It, if I held it up, it's not even just my hand. It would be my arm. My arm would get tired. You're telling me that this not even one pound microphone. What is that? I'm not going to. We're not. We don't fitness shame on this podcast, but maybe carry some books around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have thoughts about our audio quality? You can reach us on Instagram at this podcast doesn't exist. You can slide into our DMs. Uh, you can also play bingo. With the Ooh. card found in our link in bio. Please play bingo. Shannon worked very hard on our bingo. You can't see my face because that's kind of our thing. You're never going to see our faces. I don't know. We haven't made Are like you? a decision. We don't haven't know. made a decision. Currently, no, you're not. It's just going to be our our voices and text on a screen. But... Although most of you know us in real life, so you can picture the faces. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, Shannon has a, has a particular face, apparently, that other people, like the Shannon face. Oh, um, Yeah, yes. there you go. Yeah. Yep, yep. The, the raised one, eyebrow. The one eyebrow. Of like, incredulous. Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Emma, we have a lot to get to today. I know. Shannon told me she has 19 pages of notes. And guys, that is so many notes. Caveat, Mm -hmm. I use size 14 font. There are several photos. Mm -hmm. And there's at least one page of notes or of sources. (laughs) What if it was just one page of notes and 18 pages of photos? And sources. <laughs> I just actually screen share a National Geographic documentary for the podcast. <laughs> oh, How God. to get taken down off the internet. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Although, All right. who's going to find us? Big Brother is listening. Tony's listening. Yeah, but he's not going to report us. We don't even use his real name. <gasps> Tony's not his real name? Oh, he didn't tell you? Awkward. My own husband? <laughs> All right. Well, let me minimize you and minimize the audacity. Yeah, stop, stop looking at me. Well, I still see you over here in the corner, which oh. is nice because I can see you react to things. <laughs> this will be fun. Yeah. So uh, I started this notes document. With, you know how on the internet, when you're going to indicate an action, you do the little asterisks on either side? Mm-hmm. Um, so for this one, I just put, joke about Emma's flight anxiety. 
in the asterisks and then sorry tony dot 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 (laughs) dude this is a plane it's plane related (sighs) but i don't think it'll it'll rev up your specific anxiety because this is old school planes it's still anxiety inducing i mean the flight five 89 or whatever it was the sabina flight i that freaked me out to no end well i think there's enough <laughs> i think there's enough in this episode to to make you forget because emma there are so many twists and turns and at the i thought about doing like a shopping list at the beginning of this episode to be like we've got blank we've got blank but i also didn't want to give it away right at the top so is this something that i know oh yeah but oh. you may not know how deep it goes. I was okay. telling I was telling Emma and shout out to Shelby. Um, I was telling them in our little video chat that I feel like the guy, I've been informed it's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes, it is. Charlie Day. Uh, but the meme with the, the red lines string and all and string, of the lines yeah. because that's literally how I was feeling. I woke up 45 minutes before my alarm this morning. I don't know how you t- you stayed up later than me and woke up earlier than me and I barely made my way out of bed. I'm just very excited. I'm so glad. All right. So here we okay, go. Let's let's get into it. We're going to get into it. First though, I'm going to say shout out to Ruth <gasps> who specifically asked about this in our podcast reaction group chat. I hope I do this epic tale justice. Oh great author. All right. So today, Emma, we are talking about Amelia Earhart. Damn it! I knew it! <laughs> Why do you sound sad or oh, angry? I'm not sad. I am very excited. But when you said that it was it was <laughs> it was suggested by Ruth, I was like, "Oh no! I think I know what this is because planes are involved. It's Amelia Earhart. It is. <laughs> All right. So I'm so excited. Here we go. I'm going to give you what I've dubbed the wiki highlights because Ooh. there's so much about the the end part of this story that we can't spend very much time in in the early days. But I do want to lay a little bit of a foundation. Many of us have heard of Amelia Earhart. If you haven't yes. heard of her, like, Where maybe, you're, you? maybe you're not American. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to give you kind of a rundown of her. Resume. Resume. So, Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24th, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas. There you go. All right. In 1918, she and a friend attended the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto and witnessed a flying demonstration by a World War I ace plane slash pilot who decided to have a little bit of fun and take a dive at these two young women, probably thinking he was going to spook them. I'm sure he didn't get, like, super close, but it's still... Planes are relatively new in 1918, so... Oh, my God. uh, But I loved this quote that she said. I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. So that was kind of her first encounter 
more directly with flight. I like that she called it that it swished. It just swished. It's it fine. It's just saying hi. It didn't dive bomb me. It just swished. It just swished. I picture her as like a Disney princess and the plane is like a little animal. <laughs> Uh, But after a 10-minute flight of her own in 1919, Earhart knew that she wanted to learn to fly uh, on her own. She worked a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at the local telephone company. Uh, And she managed to save up the $1,000 for flying lessons. Wow. Apparently, her parents helped contribute to this kind of start fund uh, as well, even though her mother was like, this is not a good idea, but... A thousand dollars at that time. Well, an yes. incredible amount of money. Well, because it wasn't, it wasn't just for the lessons. It was kind of a security deposit, right? Like, planes are very yeah. expensive. <laughs> They're not just going to let you be like, oh, I paid 20 bucks. Here I go. So oh, in order to reach the airfield, Earhart had to take a bus to the end of the line and then walk four miles to get to the airfield, which is Dang. six kilometers for any non-American listeners out there. Dang. Um, Tom King. There you go. Uh, just wait. Tom King, just wait, is all I'm going to say. Tom, this is my ploy to make sure that you listen to every episode. Just saying your name every single every single episode so that you listen. Because that was the only way that I feel like I got you to listen to any of our episodes. So you're welcome. Continue listening and wait for your shout out. Yes, wait for it. Emma um, can't give it away so early in the podcast. I know. I'm really bad about that. Sorry. You're just excited. Uh, but everyone, you can cross off real person shout out on your bingo card at least three times over at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We already shouted out Ruth and Shelby. Yep. Tony. Yes. Tony's real. He is. The husband is real. I was at the, the wedding. Husband's, yeah, the husband's real. <laughs> All right. So um, Amelia Earhart, she actually learned to fly from another female aviator uh, named Anita, Nita, nickname, uh, Snook, oh. which I love. Snook! Um, the oh. only Snooky I care about. <laughs> Why have I never heard of her? Um, because patriarchy. Oh, okay. Probably. Hmm. And she didn't die in a airplane-related way, maybe? You don't Why know. Why would you say that, Emma? We don't know. I don't know what happened to Miss Snook. I didn't research her. That's okay. I'll look into her later because I really like her name. We love it. Uh, so, And I love this anecdote. So when Amelia Earhart decided, I'm going to go all in, I'm going to be a pilot, she cut her hair short. And she bought a leather jacket, but she did not want to be, she didn't want to stand out like a sore thumb, like, oh, here's this, like, kind of rich white girl who just bought a jacket and, like, wants to think she can fit in. So she actually slept in the jacket for three days to make it look worn out, which I kind of love. That's Um, really sweet. Yeah. Horrible sleep, but sweet. All right. And now I'm going to share my little screen with you because this is how we're doing photos. Uh, so in case you didn't know, that's what Amelia Earhart looks like. She's and so I, cute. And my caption is, if you don't have a crush, you're wrong. <laughs> because Amelia Earhart, guys, is so cute. Like She's adorable. She really I, is adorable. I love her. And she's she's one of those women of history that, like, she's so iconic because she's so singular in who she is. I love it. Yeah. 
Um, in the media, she was referred to sometimes as Lucky Lindy or Lady Lindy because apparently she looked similar to fellow aviator uh, Charles Lindbergh, which I think is interesting. It's, it's rude. Yeah, I was like, or she can just be Amelia awesome Earhart. Herself, but you know, alrighty. So on October twenty second, nineteen twenty two, Earhart flew her plane, nicknamed the Canary because it was bright yellow, uh, to an altitude of fourteen thousand feet or four thousand three hundred meters, setting a world <laughs> record for female pilots. Which I'm like, rude. We don't need to. Okay. She can just be a doctor or a pilot without being a female doctor or a female pilot. Although I do love throughout many of of these articles, they refer to Earhart as an aviatrix, which I just love. It sounds so, like, fancy. It does. Out of all the – I was having this conversation with my dad the other night of, like, the – there's no real difference between an actor and an actress or a hero or a heroine or whatever – um, and he was like, yeah, I mean, the route, the route is the same. So it doesn't make, you know, doesn't make logical sense to really change it. I mean, you know, it's just the way that we've, we've done it. And I was like, yeah, but we don't have to continue. <laughs> oh yeah. I refer to myself as an actor, not as an actress. Yeah. It's an just actor. as my own personal. Preference. I wonder, would there be a female version of a book binder? Cause we were talking about the a difference bindress. between it's- a bindress? Ooh, uh, that sounds like that sounds like I wear corsets like constantly, or I put people in corsets more likely. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, like Madame Delacroix from Bridgerton. Oh yeah, the mode. I finished. I finished. I finished Bridgerton, and I started Outlander. <laughs> so stay tuned for some Scottish legends coming from Emma in future episodes. Maybe. <laughs> So, on May 15th, 1923, Amelia Earhart became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. Her license is number 6017 by the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, or F-A-I. So, she was only the 16th woman in the U.S. That's crazy, though, that there were 15 other women before her that I haven't heard of. Yes. Other I than will maybe say, Lindbergh's wife, I think she was a... I, I know not. I will say there's a really good episode of uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class about Amelia Earhart. And I think either in that episode or in, or in an additional episode, they talk about kind of female pilots in the early 1900s in the U.S. So check them cool. out. They're cool. Cool. In 1928, uh, she was the first female passenger to cross the Atlantic via airplane. Uh, She was accompanying pilot Wilmer Stoltz, but she herself, she described that journey uh, (laughs) and her role in it as a sack of potatoes because literally she was just, she broke that record technically, but she was the first female passenger to cross the Atlantic, so... Not to be content with being a sack of potatoes, she became the first woman to fly solo across the North Atlantic continent and back in August 1928, so that same year. Okay. She competed in flying competitions and continued to advocate for women's participation in the field of aviation, uh, which, uh, is yeah. me, which is me kind of summing up the middle of her career as quickly as possible because there's so much oh, no. to talk about. Uh, so... She's she's awesome. 
1932, she became the first woman to make a nonstop solo transatlantic flight. She did this in a Lockheed Vega 5B. Um, Which we stood in front of. We did? Oh, yeah, we did. I we did. Looking, I, look, I looked for that picture, but I'm pretty sure it's on your phone. It is. It is on my phone. So for my my uh, Hindu, my bachelorette party before my wedding to Tony, who is real, um, we did a scavenger hunt around the museums in D.C. And one of the things to find was Amelia Earhart's plane. Um, and Shannon stood in front of it and I took a picture and she looked all cute and she was wearing, she was wearing a little bandana around her head. So she looked very aviatrix. So it was cute. It was cute. But yeah, that's a, that's a nice plane. Yeah. And she received the United States Distinguished Flying Cross for that achievement, uh, for crossing the Atlantic alone, nonstop. And then in 1935, she became a visiting faculty member at Purdue University as an advisor to aeronautical engineering and a career counselor to, quote, woman students. I'm like, that's such a weird way to, to describe <laughs> students, but okay. But that's so cool. Uh, she was also a member of the National Women's Party and an early supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. Of course she was. Uh, like, how, how could she not be? Truly. All right. So now we get to the journey. That was all the Uh background. This is the journey. So (sighs) you're okay. You're not, it's not, not quite yet. Okay. Okay. So early in 1936, Earhart began planning a trip that would take her around the globe. Uh, So while other people had flown around the world previously, hers would be the longest journey because she would be roughly following the line of the equator. Um, okay. Which, you know, is the thickest part of the globe. So the longest flight Thick. by distance. Yes. Uh, so she received funding from Purdue University, which I'm like, man, it must be nice to have a job where people pay you to do stuff instead of you have to pay to go to school. Yeah, really. What's up, performing arts? Um so in, in July of 1936, uh, she had a Lockheed Electra 10E built at the Lockheed Aircraft Company uh, to her specifications, which included extensive modifications to the fuselage to incorporate many additional fuel tanks, which makes sense. Oh, if you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're flying long distances, you don't want to have to stop all the time. No. Because sometimes there are oceans uh, and you don't <laughs> want to stop. Or you may not be able to stop. Sometimes there are oceans. <laughs> you know, seventy five percent of the planet. In case you didn't or however know. much that percentage is. Yes. Uh, so initially Earhart chose Captain Harry Manning to be her navigator for this journey. Uh, he had been the captain of the President Roosevelt, which is the ship that brought her back from Europe in 1928. So after she was a sack of potatoes, oh. she came back on this boat called the President Roosevelt, and he was the, the captain. He was also a pilot and a skilled radio operator who knew Morse code. So a handy guy to have. Okay. However, on a previous Cross America flight um, that had... Amelia Earhart, this Captain Manning, and Earhart's husband, George Putnam, aboard. Captain Manning's navigation had been kind of questionable. 
Um, the discrepancy was written off as kind of being minor because the flight path that they were on was very close to state lines. So he said they were in this state when actually they were in this other state, but it was really close. So people were like, ah, that's, it's fine. It's all good. Um, but later on, uh, Putnam, who's Earhart's husband, and her business partner, Paul Mance, who was uh, himself a Hollywood stunt pilot, uh, they decided they needed to put Manning's navigation skills to a test with a night flight. Uh, his navigation was deemed to, to be 20 miles off, which was, actually, which was actually within the generally accepted 30-mile um, radius or like 30 mile. Uh, what am I trying to say? This. I, I, sure. On the graph. You know what I mean? Um, uh, like the allowable difference. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of the word. We're either. not good at math. We don't remember. Uh, but you get it. So he was, by general aviotics standards, it was, he was deemed to be acceptable, but Earhart's team wasn't really willing to take any chances. So. They it seems like, like a lot of, I mean, if 30 miles is the max in terms of, like, the threshold for that, it still seems like an incredibly high amount to have 20, be 20 miles off. This is also 1930, though, like the oh, 1930s. Yeah. Planes had only been around for, what, like 20 years at that point? I keep forgetting. Yeah, you keep forgetting that this is old school. I keep forgetting history. <laughs> Oops. Whoops. So aviation contacts in the Los Angeles community pointed the team to a gentleman by the name of Fred Noonan as an excellent follow-up choice. Uh, so he had experience in both flight navigation and maritime navigation because he was at one point a ship captain. Ooh. He had just left the airline Pan Am where he had a lot of experience flying Pacific routes, which will be important later. Uh, So the original plan was for Fred Noonan to navigate the Hawaii to Howland Island uh, section of the journey, which was particularly difficult. And then Manning would take over um, to continue with Earhart to Australia, and then she would proceed on her own for the remainder of the journey, which... I don't know how I would feel about that, but I guess you're going from Australia to Hawaii, so that's relatively so, straightforward in terms of distance. Yeah, and if you're going, you're going, well, you're going from a big island to a tiny island, so. I was going to say, you're going from a tiny island to a big island, so you can see it. It's fine. No. <laughs> Not quite, but. No. Wrong, um, wrong way. Yes. So that was the plan, initially. So on March 17th, uh, 1937, Earhart and her crew fl- flew the first leg of the trip from Oakland, California uh, to Honolulu, Hawaii. And this group on this plane included Earhart, both Noonan and Manning, as well as her business partner, Paul Mance, who was acting as their technical advisor. Okay. So when they reach Hawaii, there's some technical adjustments that need to be made. Uh, So the Electra had to be serviced at the U.S. Navy's Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. Um, Fine, like doing some fine tuning. Again, this is a a plane that was commissioned specifically for this trip. So making some adjustments. Cool. 
Three days later, they attempt to take off to officially start their around-the-world journey. On board were Earhart as the pilot, Noonan as navigator, and Manning as radio operator. So, technically, she had both navigators on board, but Noonan would be navigating and Manning wouldn't take over navigation till later in the journey. However, the plane never made it off the ground. So, during the takeoff run, there was what was called an uncontrolled ground loop, which, in a general, very not informed uh, Wikipedia explanation, (laughs) a ground loop is where things get out of balance enough that one wing is tipping to the ground and the other one is in the air, and it's a... You obviously can't fly if you're that discombobulated. Um, So there was an uncontrolled ground loop. The forward landing gear collapsed. Both propellers hit the ground, and the plane skidded on its belly, damaging a portion of the runway. So Earhart and some of the reporters that were present indicated that one of the tires blew out, but others, including Captain Harry Manning, cited pilot error. Uh-oh. So, we're not quite sure. Some people say one thing, some say the other. In either case, the plane was not fit to fly and had to be returned to the Lockheed factory for repairs. Uh, so, returned to California to reset. Um, Manning had already taken a leave of absence from his regular affairs. Uh, you know, his job, his family, yeah. whoever. Uh, he was like, hey, I'm going to be flying around the world. Um, and he cited these delays and these challenges, and he officially cut, cut ties with the project. So he's no longer going to be flying around the world. Okay. And I loved, I just, I loved this quote. Um, it said, he ended his association with the trip, leaving only Earhart with Noonan. Neither of them were skilled radio operators. So, anywho, that's on, terrifying. On June first, nineteen thirty-seven, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan depart from Miami, Florida, on their second attempt at an around-the-world flight. So, in the interim between the two attempts, um, weather patterns had shifted, which is why they opted instead for a west-to-east approach before they were trying to do California to Hawaii and onward and onward. Um, But now they're going east to uh, west to east. To east. Yes, they're going. I mean, technically, the real first leg was California to Florida, but they didn't publicize that. They were in, in Miami um, when they when were like, they we're doing this thing. starting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh-huh. after numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia, they arrived at Leh, New Guinea on June 29th, 1937. At this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. The remaining 7,000 miles would be over the Pacific. And then we have another photo. Photo. Photos. Uh, ready? So this is Amelia Earhart and adorable and Fred Noonan. Um, this was taken um, prior to their journey to their flight. Let me they stop. look adorable, they and are. he also looks 
even though I know he's not at that moment, he looks like an old man. Like the way that he's like, the way that he's standing, he's just like, nah. Yeah, he needs <laughs> to stand up. Uh, I did see an article. I didn't end up including it, but uh, recently, I say recently, sometime in the last couple of years, um, they came up with technology, like AI technology to kind of animate old photos. And they have one of Amelia Earhart where it's kind of like a GIF in that it's just kind of like blinking and like smiling and shifting around. Um, But it's cool to kind of see these historical figures come to life. That would be awesome. Yeah. Terrifying, Um, but awesome. Not terrifying. I don't know. AI as a thing scares me anyway, but... Well, they specifically said in the article that they keep it to a short loop and they don't colorize it to prevent deep fakes, which Uh, I think is fair. Like, people on the internet would have... Amelia Earhart saying something awful. Yeah. Field day. That's fair. Alrighty. So this next, Emma, we are in a plane, so you may want to buckle up. Aw, crap. Alright, well, it has to be... Can I I have one across my shoulders, too? Can I do, like... You could do, like, an army pilot. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask. I want an army pilot seatbelt, because I don't want one just around my waist, because that never has made me feel safe. Uh uh-uh. uh, no. I need I need Top Gun style like plug in, plug in. All right, <laughs> ready. Okay, great. Because this I next... tightened it. That was that me. That was me tightening it. Oh, good. I was worried you got punched accidentally <laughs> in your mom's closet. Yeah, the creepy but... monkey crawled out of the cabinet and came after you. <laughs> I honestly don't know where the monkey is because he's not in his normal spot. So <gasps> he's right behind you. <laughs> now I nope, want to like dirty text, laundry. Now I want to text your mom and be like, sneak up behind Emma. No, she's at her office. Luckily, she's Darn. getting Wi-Fi put in in her office, so she's like gone right. for the morning. Well, next so, time. Thankfully, I'm the only person here. So if anything happens to me, it's the monkey's fault. Yeah. Well, hopefully not. This next section of my notes, I've just titled "Trouble." Uh-oh. With a capital T that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. Musical reference. You're welcome. It took, it took me a minute. <laughs> Emma didn't jump on board, so I felt the need I've to not, explain I, I remember. I remember watching you in that musical, and that's the only exposure I have to that musical, really. You haven't seen so. the Dick Van Dyke version? Nope. Oh. To be fair, if neither I, have if I. I have, but... If I have, I don't remember it. But... Fair. All right. Well, Trouble. Right here in the South Pacific. (sighs) On July 2nd, 1937, Earhart and Noonan took off from Ley Airfield. Their intended destination was Howland Island, a flat sliver of land 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide and 2,556 miles away. I'm not going to read all of that in kilometers. I'm sorry. No. There's so many numbers. I can barely read them. You know miles. Yeah, I feel like the whole rest of the world is able to conceptualize the conversion, and we're like, meep, boom, I don't know. So, uh, correct. (laughs) When they took off from Lay Airfield, some witnesses reported seeing a a radio antenna that may have been damaged during takeoff. Um, But no radio antenna was found on the runway, so that's kind of a disputed report. 
There were overcast weather conditions, which is, you know, always a complication with flight, especially when it's 1937. And they may have been using outdated maps. Later investigations showed that Noonan's chart of the island's position was off by five nautical miles. And I just wrote, how, question mark, question mark, because they didn't explain what the later investigations were. I am assuming that there were multiple copies of the chart because I'm like, well, if there was only one and it went down with him, how did you know it was off? So (laughs) they must have had multiple copies. Also, five. it makes me laugh because nautical miles are like 1.13 miles. Like, it's not all that much more than a mile. <laughs> well, I'm like, I, why? 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 Uh, if, you're, if you are a sailor, write in and let us know what the heck. I also don't know if I'm exact in exactly how much of more than a mile it is, but I know it's just about that. As so. we know, Tony has informed Emma that she should never speak with confidence on anything she has not specifically researched for this podcast. Yeah. And he will continue to tell me that because apparently I do it a lot outside of my, like in my own life, in my own life. It'll be like a, a like a movie that I haven't seen. And I'm like, yep, that's, yep, that's the plot. And that's he's like, totally what happens. What? And I'm like, yep, that's it. And it's mostly because I don't want to continue the conversation <laughs> or I'm misremembering something. You're like, shut it down. Shut it down. Stop. Uh, you just fully embody the Kathy Clay attitude of strong and wrong strong and wrong strong and wrong tis my tis my life motto sorry tis your life motto tis so during the flight noonan may have been able to do some celestial navigation to determine their position um they also noted in one of these articles what are you doing (laughs) celestial navigation sounds like they're in space (laughs) Oh. I know what it means. I know that he's like charting himself with this uh, with the stars of like where they are, but like celestial navigation sounds like, well, we made it to space and now we are traveling from star to star. And well, Emma just we'll get there. Don't worry. What? Yeah, don't worry. So they made <laughs> they made a note in one of these articles that the plane would cross the international dateline during the flight, which uh, failing to account for the dateline could account for a one degree or 60 mile position error. 60 miles? Yes. Dang. Sorry. I love Emma getting mad at scientific facts is my favorite (laughs) segment of this podcast. I'm not mad. I'm just surprised. (laughs) True. So apparently um, throughout this, this flight, Earhart actually had to drop in altitude just due to the heavy cloud cover. Um, and then at 8.43 on July 2nd, Earhart radioed the Itasca the following message. K-H-A-Q-Q, which were the Electra's uh, call letters, so her plane's call letters, oh. to Itasca. We are on line 157337. So the Itasca was a U.S. Coast Guard ship that had been stationed very close to um, the island that they're traveling to, uh, to Howland Island, uh, to 
be a navigational assist for the plane, as well as to ferry news reporters that were tracking their journey. Uh, They just sent it as a support because, as previously mentioned, the island that they're going for is very small. Yes. It's very skinny. Um, So that's what that ship was doing, and she was trying to communicate with it. Uh, They sent up smoke plumes to help to try and visually assist Earhart, as well as contact via radio through several different methods. As as is the case with a lot of this research, which I'll get into further in a, in a little bit, there's so much of it. It's so dense uh, that if you're very interested, you can go and check that out. Um, I didn't have the mental capacity to get into all of the technicalities of the radio um but there are different wavelengths and different methods and none of them were successful unfortunately uh in making contact uh Earhart didn't actually have that much training on her newly installed equipment nor did Noonan as we previously noted neither of them were very skilled radio communicators so that's less than ideal yes um, and she was actually she was able to make contact with the Itasca, uh, but they could not get her on the right frequency to receive their messages. Okay. And then we're going to share the screen again. Uh, all of these photos you can find on our Instagram. Ooh. So this is a radio log from the uh, oh, pieces from, of paper from the Itasca, um, and you can see uh, that. These are her call signs, like signal, da da da. da. I don't really understand what any of it means, but they have the for them and several the timestamp. Readable. Wow, that's really cool. Yes. Uh, If anyone, if any of you are friends with me on Facebook, as some of you are, this was why at like one thirty in the morning this morning I was. Posting on Facebook, no spoilers, but y'all, I love the National Archives. Um, because I do. There's so much. There is so much. There's there's that. There's the photograph of Elvis and Nixon shaking hands and meeting. Yes. Yes. There's your callback to a previous episode, friends, if you're looking for that on your bingo welcome. card. welcome. I wore my Elvis shirt the other day and got a lot of compliments, so I'm real happy about that. You're so snazzy. I was snazzy. My bedazzled Elvis shirt makes me happy. We love that. So uh, Earhart was able to communicate at several points that they were running low on fuel and that they were looking for this island. They were looking for the Itasca. She was not seeing them. Um, Earhart's transmissions seemed to indicate that she and Noonan believed they had reached the Howland's charted position, which was incorrect by the aforementioned five nautical miles, which is about 10 kilometers. But the island in question is only 10 feet high, so it's both skinny and short. What? So s- what? <laughs> so some, some postulate that because it has such a low profile, it just didn't stand out against the sea when you're looking down on it from the sky, especially when it's coupled with heavier cloud cover. So they could have just flown over it and not even realized and not that even it was known. There. So it's 10 feet high on like a good day. How long is it? It is. Sorry. Back. Here we go. Ba-ba-ba-da-da-da-do. 
Um, it is 6,500 feet long, which is 2,000 Okay, kilometers. so it's pretty long, but yes. not at all that tall. Right. Golly. Yeah. Um, so some postulate that she just, they didn't see it. Also, five nautical miles, they may not have been looking in the right place or expected to see it. Like, maybe they yeah. saw it, but they were like, that's not the correct island. Because we're not disregard. Yeah, we're not. Kind of like flight, flight 19 in the Bermudas. Like, maybe they totally flew over it, but they thought it was a different set of islands. Yeah. So, at some point, um, like I said, her last transmission was... K-H-A-Q-Q to Itasca. We are on line 157337. And then they were not able to make contact anymore. And they assumed that the flight had gone down, that the plane had gone down. 66 aircraft and nine ships were involved in the search and rescue effort to locate Earhart and Noonan. Dang. Um, It was authorized by FDR himself. Uh, It took two weeks and cost $4 million. Jeez. After that, Earhart's husband, George Putnam, hired civilian ships to continue on in the search. Um, which Aww. just, anytime I hear, like, civilian ships, it just reminds me of Dunkirk. I know that's not related at all, but that's what I think of. It's not It's not little fishermen in their tiny boats chugging along. I mean, trying maybe. Trying to find maybe. Amelia. Maybe, uh, we maybe don't know. they were. That's true. Maybe they were. Yeah. Um, I mean, is, we're in the South Pacific. They're a water-based like system you know that's true that's true um so in 1939 two years after their disappearance there's been no sign of these aviators uh amelia Earhart and fred noonan are declared dead in absentia by the u.s government that's so sad poor george yeah so those are the facts as we Uh-oh. know them and now oh, no. <laughs> we get into the theories. Yes! And y'all, you better get your bingo cards ready because there are some unexpected things in this. So, prepare yourself. I'm so excited. Um, okay. I'm ready for the Charlie Day of it all. Yes. Uh, we're starting. We have one that has, like, a lot of evidence, and then we have some, like, kind of kooky ones, and then we circle okay. back to another one with more evidence. Okay. I'm excited. So, there's a group called the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, shortened TIGER, like T-I-G-H-A-R. Oh, they used the because they were like, Iger doesn't sound right. Tiger. Um, so they believe that Earhart ultimately landed on Gardner Island, which is a nearby deserted island that is now called Niku Mororo, which is just a fun thing to say, but it makes my brain trip every time I look at it. Uh, when she couldn't locate Howland Island, that she landed on Gardner Island instead, and then they perished as Aww. castaways because nobody could find them. So in her last communication, the, quote, line 157337 indicates that the plane was flying on a northwest to southeast navigational line that bisected Howland Island. If they missed Howland, they would either fly northwest yeah. or southeast back and forth to try and find it. To the northwest yeah. is just open ocean for miles and miles and miles and miles. 
to the southwest is Niku Mororo. So it would make more sense that based on the information they had, they would go southwest because there's a better chance that there's land, which is what Flight 19 should have done. Just keep going west. You're going to hit Texas. Or Florida. Or Mexico. But anyway, refer to an, refer to an earlier yeah. episode if you'd like to hear me get mad about that. Go ahead. So a week following their disappearance on July 2nd, a week later, a military plane that was part of the rescue effort flew over Gardner Island and issued the following report. Quote, Here signs of recent habitation were clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answering wave from possible inhabitants, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. At the eastern end of the island, a tramp steamer of about 4,000 tons, so a boat, uh, lay high and almost dry, head on to the coral beach with her back broken in two places. The lagoon at Gardner looked sufficiently deep and certainly large enough so that a seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction with little, if any, difficulty. Given a chance, it is believed that Miss Earhart could have landed her aircraft in this lagoon and swum or waded ashore. End quote. So we'll come okay, back to that abandoned ship a little bit later. Yes. Uh, so when the island, so when Gardner Island was temporarily colonized by the British in 1940, skeletal remains, 13 bones to be exact, were found near evidence of campfires and animal bones consistent with hunting. And also, based on the way that the clams were opened and the fish was consumed, a.k.a. the heads were not eaten, the person that was around these campfires was probably not a Pacific Islander. That's so, so interesting. That's pretty notable. However, however, there's been a lot of back and forth about this skeleton. First of all, they refer to it as a skeleton. It's 13 bones. It's not a complete skeleton. So in 1941... A scientist claims, after his analysis, that the skeletal remains are a man. But in 1998, University of Tennessee anthropologist Richard Yance reinterpreted them as coming from a woman of European ancestry and about Earhart's height. 2015, I wrote, JK, we're back to thinking it's a man. However, in 2018, a study found that historical records of the bones measurements, oh, because, by the way, the bones were then lost after they were analyzed in 1941, because no one can keep track of anything. It makes me so angry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <sighs> uh, so... In 2018, the historic records of these bones measurements matched Earhart's measurements closer than 99% of the general population. Okay, so they're, they're hers. I mean, maybe, based upon so, the evidence. So, so they used an inseam length and the waist circumference from a pair of Earhart's trousers, um, obviously that she didn't take with her on yeah. the trip. Um, but they used those to help compare... With the historical records of these bone measurements. Well, I'm hoping they were paying attention to the style of the day. Because your waist in the 30s was much higher. Anyway, well, never mind. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't either. But 
All right. So, Emma. Yes. I am so glad this next part, I am so glad that I did not learn about it last night because it is horrifying. Oh, yay! (laughs) Is this the thing that you sent me? (laughs) Not the thing you sent me, but the thing you told me you were going to preemptively uh, get me back for scaring you in our next week's episode. Yes, correct. So, what happened to the rest of the skeleton? The average adult skeleton, in case you didn't know, which I didn't know, has 206 bones. Makes sense. So where are the other 193 bones? It's a of lot this of bones. Person. The answer might be coconut crabs. Oh no. So that was not. I from, was like cannibalism. Like uh, for some reason that was more oh, no. interesting than coconut crabs, and now I'm terrified. Yeah, you should be. Oh, so, no. <laughs> this is from National Geographic, which essentially this whole podcast should be brought to you by National Geographic. Because I cited, I think, six different articles, and that was a conservative constraint on my part. Wow. I could have kept going, but I was like, you know what? We're recording in 30 minutes. I should wrap it up. <laughs> so, this is a quote from Nat Geo. As the largest land invertebrate on the planet, coconut crabs can measure up to three feet across and clock in at over nine pounds. In short, they are too big. Correct, National Geographic. Correct. And then, uh, Emma, you get to see a coconut crab. Oh, God. (laughs) Look at it. Isn't that terrifying? Oh, my God. Isn't it just horrifying? Oh, my God. And then it'll be more horrifying in a second. Hold on. Great. Thanks. So, these crabs are omnivorous and are notorious as, quote, robber crabs for dragging prey back to their underground burrows. Scientists, Scientists did a study where they brought a pig carcass to this specific island. And the crabs, Emma, stripped the flesh from the body in two weeks. Oh, my gosh. Emma's just clutching her face in horror. You look like Edvard, Edvard Munch, the scream. <laughs> yeah. No, but and then, really, oh, my gosh. And then here we go. The most unexpected shout out you didn't expect to read. Tom King, I don't know why you're still in school getting a doctorate when you're already an archaeologist. Here's another quote from Nat Geo. This tells us crabs drag bones, says Tom King, the group's <laughs> former chief archaeologist. But it doesn't tell us how far. <laughs> That's hilarious. A, a year after the experiment, they discovered some bones had been dragged 60 feet from the body, but they couldn't account for all the remains. Oh, my gosh. So crabs are terrifying. And actually, as horrifying as this is, it might actually be helpful in terms of If there is DNA evidence to be found, it might be, it it would have a better chance of survival in an underground crab burrow than it would out on the surface because it's incredibly hot and humid. Fair. Very fair. However, the idea of having to investigate that burrow and having to deal with with the crab not wanting you in there is a little too much for me. Well, that's why you and I are podcasters, not scientists. Hell yeah. 
Also, um, the article specifically, it's in the show notes if anyone else is ready to be terrified. Uh, it talks about how during the day it's fine because it's really hot, but at night the crabs will like <gasps> circle you. Oh my god! <laughs> So, yeah, that's my preemptive strike against whatever you're going to freak me out with in, like, an hour. Next week. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah thanks. Oh, All right. That was so, that, so gross. I yeah. hated that. I hated that so much. Yeah. But aren't you – like, I'm so glad I read that at 8.30 in the morning and not oh, 1.30 so, in the morning. Yeah. You wouldn't have slept. No, I wouldn't. Uh, also, further reason to never go on Survivor. Oh, no, thank like, you. Like, they're in Fiji, but Fiji is, like, relatively close. I mean, in terms of ocean, it's like a thousand miles away. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, we're you. leaving the, the carnivorous, omnivorous great, great. crabs behind. Perfect. Leave them there. So, Ugh. yes. So on this island, other artifacts that have been found include U.S. made items such as a jackknife, a woman's compact, a zipper pull, and glass jars, including a jar for freckle cream, which... Earhart was known to use. That's interesting. To, I, I've, I've, I remember this from college of there being a class where we were studying something along the lines of like Gilded Age or whatever. And from like the middle of the 1800s through to the 1950s, it was like gross to have freckles. Just well, yeah, because that meant you were out in the sun, and only poor people go in the sun. Emma, it's so silly. I'm covered in freckles. <laughs> I would, and I, I never go out in the sun. <laughs> if I did not have diabetes, I would be so down to go time traveling back to like Baroque Europe because they loved themselves a curvy, pale lady. They were like, that means you're rich because you eat and you don't go outside. Yep. I would have fit in yep. so well. Yep. Hair toss. Hair right. toss. They also Hair well the toss. I know the audience can't see me. I know that, but it was very funny. So also uh, on this island, uh, they've discovered a sextant, which is a navigation device, um, and based on the make and model, essentially that they've researched, uh, this is the sort that Fred Noonan would have used during that time period. Okay, so I'm thoroughly convinced of this theory. Currently, we'll just. Just wait. My next note. Missing plane? Question mark. No problem. The tide swept it away. Okay. So the tide was extremely low at the time of Earhart's last communication to the Itasca, mm. indicating that she might have been able to land on the exposed reef of the island um, oh. in her plane. And then the rest of this next bit is from national or yes national geographic again. what what part what part of this is not from national geographic uh the parts that are from wikipedia and uh, a couple of you there's actually a lot of sources i'm really i'm i'm really impressed. many of them are national geographic well i mean reputable source so it's true absolutely i gave i get i had to give them two different emails because in order to get three free articles a month you have to like sign up but i already reached my my three, so we I got to... We got to get you a, a subscription. Guys, share this with your friends so that we can get people to do ads with us so that Shannon can have a National Geographic subscription. 
Thank you. Don't don't say that because then if my dad listens to this, he will 100% get me the magazine for Christmas. And then I'll feel really guilty because I will never read it. But I'll be – I'll feel bad that I'll have it. Mr. McCarthy, no. you heard. Here first. Don't get it. You gotta wait. Online. It's- Online, dad. Online. Because then I can Online. use it for research for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Online. All right. Anyway, shout out to our non-sponsor, but should be a sponsor, Nat Geo. <laughs> Uh, the line of position radio message was the last confirmed transmission from Earhart, but radio operators received 121 messages over the next 10 days. Whoa. Of those, at least 57 could have been from the Electra. So I guess based on the frequency and other technical stuff that I don't understand, um, but they narrowed it down to 57. Wireless station took direction bearings on six of them. Four, quote, four cross near the Phoenix Islands, said Tom King, Tiger's <laughs> senior archaeologist in a previous interview. Quote, most messages were at night when the tide was low. So the tides are an important factor in this. Also, some people theorize that these messages came at night because it gets very hot inside an aluminum airplane during the day in the South Pacific. If the plane was just on the beach. And the crabs were out. No, the crabs are out at night. I know. And so, so are the why... radio messages, right? Yeah. Oh, so they're hiding in the plane from the crabs is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. Although I don't... The crabs don't, like, attack living people. You don't I know think that. They're... I do. I read the article. They don't know they're that. Just, they're waiting for you to die so I then they like can that. scavenge your they're body. <laughs> I now have an image of a line of crabs at night just on the edge on the edge of the shore just like snapping their little claws and going, we're waiting. We're waiting. I don't like that at all. Well, I don't either. But Ugh. I think you'll like this next part better. Okay. So in 2017... A team of four forensic dogs and their handlers traveled to the island to investigate. So these dogs are trained by the Institute for Canine Forensics. Good job, babies. And they have discovered human remains as old as 1,500 years and as deep as nine feet. Whoa. So they are very accurate, apparently. You need to go look at these, um, at the article about this because I could not include this photo. But there are photos of these doggos wearing their little special booties <laughs> and cooling vests because it's very hot. Yeah. In in the South Pacific, and yeah. these are like border collies, yeah. so they're very fluffy dogs. Um, and each of them gets their own feature photo with their name and their handler's information. So please go look at the article. Do you remember any of their names? Uh, Marcy, <gasps> Berkeley. Oh. I should have written it down. I literally was like, write it down. Emma's going to want to know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was, I was flying through. No, it's fine. I'll look it up. So, yes, if you would like to know the dog's names... You can go check it out. It's a National National Geographic article. Sweet babies. So all four of the dogs at separate times alerted at the base of one particular tree, indicating that at some point human remains were decomposing there. And they did bring 
something else I learned. Um, if you don't want to donate your body to, like, doctor research, you could donate your body to science for, like, the, um, what is the name of this? Institute for Canine Forensics. You can donate your bones because then they use them as, like, controls. So they'll <gasps> plant bones in a particular environment to make sure the dogs, like, their sniffers are working, That's essentially. Yeah, so if, you know, you could donate your skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company for a production of Hamlet. You could donate it to the canine forensics for training dogs, all kinds of things. I really like the idea that my will is just going to be filled with what to do with my body and not with my stuff. I was going to say, isn't this a much more fun idea than being turned into a creepy vase? Uh-huh. I'm still interested in the vase, but I I am I am considering having them chop my head off and then have that as part of the dog thing and the rest of me be made into a vase. I'll let you and Tony work that one out. Um, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> Tony's going to be like, No! He's going to be like, what? What? Um, yes. So, expi- uh, but, uh, boo, words. Excavation near this tree that was alerted upon by these dogs revealed no bones. Okay. So, they took soil samples that were sent off to the lab to test for, like, residual DNA. Uh, but there was inconclusive evidence probably due to the warm temperatures and the humid environment of the island, both in terms of it made it harder for these border collies to work. Um, Apparently, they don't do well in temperatures higher than 80 degrees. Uh, uh, Like messes with their... Fair, fair. Um, And also not ideal in terms of uh, preserving DNA. DNA likes cold environments. So surface, probably not. But... They did say, they did make a point in the article to point out that these dogs do not necessarily go where the remains are. They go where the scent is the strongest. So if remains have been scuttled away into an underground burrow by a terrifying crab monster, it's possible that the scent is just stronger at the tree, but the actual remains are elsewhere. Okay. Um, but they were only there for a certain amount of time, so... Because it's too hot for the babies. Yes. Um, also, the dogs, they indicated, in addition to the heat and conditions on the ground, they had to fly 12 hours and then take, like, a four-day boat trip to get to the oh, island. So maybe so they were are, yeah. discombobulated. Yeah. So that is a lot of information about the... Um, Gardner Island slash Niku Mororo Island theory, which is the main theory of the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, also known as Tiger. That's their main bread and butter. Their website is in the show notes. And you guys, they have kind of a two-minute overview summation. So if you're just kind of ready to get it in passing, which... I don't know why you'd need the two-minute version after you listen to this, but maybe you just want to check it out. But they also have an itemized list of all of the evidence that's been collected so far. So, again, I could have gone all the way down, but I have other theories to bring you. (laughs) So, up next. Okay. Get your bingo card ready. 
because our next theory is aliens. Oh, yes! They're hanging so out with Flight uh, Flight 19. <laughs> yes. Um, so apparently this area of the South Pacific is a, quote, hotbed for otherworldly activity. Uh, here's the quote from USA Today. Conspiracy theorists imagine that the Easter Island heads were built by aliens using lasers, that there's a skyscraper built by extraterrestrials at the bottom of the Pacific, and the frog-like statues of Marqueska Island depict an ancient alien race, unquote. Uh, Conspiracists claim that Earhart was in fact not lost at sea, but rather beamed up by alien investigators to be examined and or cryogenically frozen, and or whisked away to create a whole new race of life on another planet. And my follow-up questions. Yeah. Did, they, did they not take Fred? Uh, yeah, if where, not, where's Fred? <laughs> if not, where's Fred's body? And where is the plane? Like, did they take all of it? it Just you know, swoop right out of the, right yeah. out of the atmosphere. I mean... I will say this theory only popped up in one of the many articles I looked at, so it's a little short one, but I had to include it because I know you love a weird alien situation. Aliens. Well, the most exciting part about that is the fact that it's unexplainable, inexplicable. Those are two, I I hate that word because it's like... Inconceivable. Yeah, but it's also unable to be proven either right or wrong so yet yeah that's true yet all right trucking right along because we have more to talk about the next theory is that amelia Earhart actually survived and assumed a new identity why was george not nice i don't know oh okay so this theory posits that she moved to new jersey (laughs) Why? <laughs> Which, like, why would you? No offense, fam, that's listening, but why? the taxes. It's so crowded, all the things. Um, that she moved to New Jersey, remarried, and changed her name to Irene Bolam. Bolam? Unclear. Um, okay. USA Today is where I got this little tidbit. Uh, author W.C. Jameson wrote in Amelia Earhart, Beyond the Grave, that he had interviewed the nephew of a former U.S. Army official who said it was common knowledge in, quote, high-ranking intelligence circles that Earhart was, quote, involved in an intelligence-gathering operation. Well, I don't disbelieve that. That would be something that I think the U.S. government, especially at that point in time, would have been interested in doing, especially if she was fully willing to be like, I'm going to do this to set a record. And they were like, great. Can you also like maybe do this while and then uh, while you're doing it and we'll fund it and like, you know, finagle stuff. So I don't disbelieve that at all. The nephew thing is like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like, if anybody asked me what my dad's job was in the army, I'd be like, I don't know. know. He got deployed a bunch of places. He was in intelligence, which as a kid, I thought meant computers because Intel was like the computer chip. I guess that's what my, and I was like, my dad is not good at computers. What? (laughs) What? Sorry. 
Sorry, Mr. McCarthy. It's okay. He's better now. He he shouts at the Alexa less. That's good. Jody's like training him. Good. Um. So this idea that she moved to New Jersey and became Irene was originally presented in the book Amelia Earhart Lives by Joe Kloss. Um, however, this theory is a little hard to believe because the real Irene submitted a $1.5 million lawsuit against him saying that his claims were untrue. She was a banker. She already had a life. Uh, so this is a little hard to believe. That's so... Yeah, dude, you don't go for someone if you're if you're making up a theory. And I don't know if he maybe he like fully believed it, but like don't go for somebody who's who's still alive and hanging yeah. out and able to fight back. And I and think- then he probably is like um well, she only fought back because it's true, and that kind of thing. So, I don't know. I guess, but if it was really her, though, she probably has enough money, both from, like, her previous endeavors and potentially the U.S. government, that why would she need $1.5 million? And if she, it really was her, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't hold up. Yeah. But as we previously alluded to, some claim that this new identity theory is true in tandem with the fact that Amelia Earhart was... A spy. Do a spy. A spy. Bingo card. There you go. Um, evidently working for FDR in his administration. Um, Randall Brink, who wrote the book Lost Star, theorizes that Earhart never intended to fly to Howland Island. Instead, she and Noonan were tasked to document Japanese island institu- installations for the U.S. government when they were detected by the Japanese and shot down or forced to land. And or that she, uh, she got too famous, like she got too popular that she could no longer be a spy. So she had to fake her death slash her disappearance and change her identity to become a new person. I wrote... Kind of a dick move to not include your husband and then get remarried if you ask me whether or not you're a spy. Yeah. I mean, if that if that is the case that she's living in New Jersey with a new family, it might be that she's, you know, somewhere in Nova Scotia just hanging out. But, um, I mean, maybe not now. She'd be... Yeah, probably not. Yeah. but <laughs> She was born in 1897. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, no, she's no. She's definitely not old. alive anymore. Um. But I don't, again, I don't disbelieve that she would be recruited in that way. I do kind of disbelieve that um, both her and Frank were were recruited in that way. Fred. Fred? Yeah, Who's Fred Frank? Noonan. Fred Noonan. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, Fred. Um, but I only say that because the other guy, Manning, um, who, like, pieced out of the out of the thing like Mm -hmm. it was already something that they had planned so maybe it was like it was planned beforehand he dipped out because something happened and then once they were going to start up in miami that's when fdr's administration was like yo can you also do these things but i don't know i find it a little like i i think it's easy for our brains to be like oh yeah she was a spy because there are other instances of famous particularly women, uh, using their celebrity as kind of 
hiding in plain sight to yeah. do covert operations. However, no government documents that's from FDR's personal files or the Navy or Army intelligence have ever surfaced that reference Earhart as a covert agent. Yeah. Which, like we said, she would be, what, over 120 years old at yeah. this point? Yeah, it's, it's well beyond declassification. So she, you know, she would, she's definitely passed in yeah. whatever case. So I feel like, not like, oh, the Army needs promo, but like, they like to release interesting stories that are positive in a way because, yeah. you know. But we also have learned that uh, the government doesn't and can't keep secrets from people for all that long because people like to tell secrets. So even if it were something that were true, we would probably know it. Unless there was absolutely no documentation on it. It was just like a handshake agreement kind of situation of like when she got back, she would give a report and then they would get things running. But yeah, I feel like Uh, it wouldn't work that way. The National Archive does have a letter that Amelia Earhart wrote to FDR before she set off on her around the world trip um, because she was actually very close friends with the first lady. That makes sense to me. Yes. Um, so Eleanor, Eleanor was a badass. So, yes. So the next theory is that Amelia Earhart, after crash landing, being forced to land something along those lines, uh, was forced into a role of Tokyo Rose, which was the title assigned to any English speaking woman on the World War II airwaves who was reading off Japanese propaganda. Um, I think for this theory to work, we definitely have to assume that Earhart was being held captive. Yeah. But I don't they didn't really go into it super in depth, but I don't I I don't see the bridge to like, yeah, she was this American aviator to now I'm supporting the Japanese. Like yeah. I think it was definitely a, a a captive situation. Her husband, George Putnam, personally investigated this theory, listening to many recordings to confirm that it was not his lost wife's voice. Oh, that's so sad. Because you you yeah. know that he's probably listening to it going, uh, like, a little bit, hoping that it's her voice. Because, yeah. one, he wants to hear her voice again, and, two, he wants to see if she's still alive. Like, oh, I can't imagine that kind of heartache. My yeah. gosh. Well, this is going to make you sadder. Oh, great. Um, I thought this was... I'm going to choose to view it as a cute fact because not only were they married, but then they continued to, like, work closely together. I think in other circumstances, this would be not cute and instead, like, disrespectful disrespectful of boundaries, but we're going to look at it as cute. Okay. Uh, she asked... He asked Amelia Earhart to marry him six times before she agreed. Oh, that's kind of cute, though. My parents didn't get married until my dad asked a second time because the first time he asked, my mom was actually dating somebody else. <laughs> and he knew Oops. it. Um, my that's, mom that's and dad, cute. my mom and dad, like, they got divorced when I was in grade school. But I still think this is a funny story, especially if you know my dad. Uh, apparently, when he asked my mom to marry him uh, for the first time, they'd only been dating for like six months. And she thought he was joking. Oh, which, if you've met my father, he's a very jokey, jovial yeah. kind of guy. So yep, I think that makes sense. Funny. If he were just like, nudge, nudge, marry me. And she were hey. like, ha ha, ha ha And he's like, wait, but no, wait. Oh, just 
Just kidding. Okay. Uh, at least that's how the story has been told to me. We'll see how many of my family members listen to this and if I get a correction text or talk oh. over the dinner table. All right. So next, I believe this is our final, yes, our final theory and our second of the more evidence-supported. Ooh. Um, carries on with this Tokyo Rose idea in that oh, okay. um, that she and Noonan were taken prisoner by the Japanese. So, in 2017, just, like, mere weeks before the dog sniffer, the forensic dogs, Babies. Um, went out and alerted on the tree, which is kind of interesting because it's like, these are very, these are competing theories, right? So, yeah. It's just interesting. So in 2017, a photo was rediscovered in the National Archives that seemed to indicate that both Earhart and Noonan survived their fuel situation and made it to the Jalyut Atoll in the Japanese-controlled Marshall Islands. And so this photo served as the primary source for a new History Channel documentary, I was not able to watch this documentary, but it looks very interesting. Uh, So historians and even a former executive assistant director for the FBI have examined this photo and have deemed it to be undoctored. I'm going to share my screen again. And again, you can see these on the Instagram. So this is the original photo. Pretty small. um, But they have a a lovely little zoomed-in version here. Wow. So you'll see there are two uh, Caucasian individuals, and um, the woman, they assume it to be a woman because the hair is too long to be in fashion for a man uh, and is also similar to uh, Amelia Earhart's signature short haircut. Um, This figure's also wearing pants, but they're sitting on the edge of a dock. Their back is to the camera, so it's hard to make any sort of facial recognition. The man in the photo is standing over to the left. Uh, We have the zoomed-in photo on the Instagram as well. Um, And the hairline in particular is a very specific hairline. It's very sharply receding on one side. And this is almost identical to existing photos of Fred Noonan. So that's what they point to of like, this is them. It's totally them. Totally, totally, totally. That's so Um, interesting. It really does look like Amelia Earhart. I mean, as uh, I mean, yeah. from from uh, from being told that that's probably her or potentially yeah. her, um, but also the fact that there are there are two Caucasian people on that dock, yes, and only um, two. They also point to the fact that the the female figure, the presumed Amelia Earhart, is looking over to the right. Uh, there's a Japanese barge that is towing an unclear object. I'm going to stop sharing my screen with Emma so I can read my notes again. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, So the Japanese photo, or excuse me, the photo shows a Japanese ship called Koshu towing a barge with something that appears to be 38 feet long, which is apparently the same length as Earhart's plane. That's very specific to get from a photograph. Okay, but people can do that. You know that guy on TikTok oh, who can true. figure out how that's tall true. people are? Yeah. He's like, yeah, and their hand next to a stop sign. Yeah, the no, average that's space true. between blah, blah, blah. Like, so people, people science can do it. people can do that, Emma. <laughs> Not us, Sorry. but science people. Science people. Um, so locals of this island 
uh, have stories of seeing Amelia Earhart's plane crash land. And these stories have been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, they even immortalized these events in a series of postage stamps in the 1980s. So, like, there's one, like, showing the plane crashing and one, like, that the plane is being towed by a barge and all these things. And then it's theorized that from this island, uh, from the Marshall Islands, that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were taken to Saipan, uh, where their fate is unknown, um, but they would be prisoners of war at that point. So, probably not... Great. A positive ending. Um, it's thought that this photo in question that was discovered in the National Archives uh, may have been taken by an individual who was spying on the Japanese on the behalf of the United States, which could explain why no action was taken. If, it, if this photo did make it to anyone of importance, they couldn't reveal their source. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but I guess technically... In this series, in this theory of series of events, Earhart and Noonan are civilians and this person is a covert operative. Yeah. So they would so. choose to protect that source. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate. NBC News has a nice little short two minute clip that sums up this theory pretty nicely. It talks about the new documentary. It's in the show notes if you wanted to take a look. And then, Emma, here's the other thing that had me so excited about the National Archives last <laughs> okay. night at 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> there is. So, in the Amelia Earhart section mm-hmm. of the National Archives Oh, website, I love that there's a section. Yes. There's a typewritten letter dated January 7th, 1939. And it, this letter, Emma, is pertaining to the contents of a literal message in a bottle. <gasps> so, this bottle washed ashore in the Bordeaux re- region of France on Ooh. October 30th, 1938. So, a year and uh, and change after um, their plane went down, supposedly. Okay. Um, so, it was discovered on October 30th, 1938, and then was tran- uh, typewritten up to transmit to the appropriate authorities, which is why it's dated January 7th, 1939. Okay. So, this bottle contained three items. One was a paper that had the following written in French. God guide this bottle. I confide my life and that of my companions to it. Two, a lock of chestnut-colored hair. Three, another letter, again in French, describing the author's experience being captured by the Japanese and imprisoned in the Marshall Islands. Their their letter claims that Earhart, her male mechanic, is how he's referred to, and several other Europeans were also imprisoned. The full text of this letter is available at the National Archive link that's in the show notes. Also... You can sign up for the National Archives newsletter, Ooh. and you can become a civilian transcriber. Yes. I'm so excited. I've already, I've already done that a couple times. I'm so excited. Yes. Um, so I'm going to show Emma this uh, document. Let me click on the correct thing. Um, it, it didn't really work to include it in the... Um, to include it in the Instagram, just because when you zoom in, it's kind of blurry, but... That's fair. It's... Ooh. It's just... Wait, it's so, so it was written in French? 
it was. And then it was typed up to transmit to the appropriate authorities. Um, but, you know, I have been a prisoner at Jalyut Marshalls by the Japanese. In the prison there, I have seen Amelia Earhart, aviatrix, and in another cell, her mechanic, a man, as well as several other European prisoners held on charge of alleged spying on large fortifications erected on the atoll. Okay, so this isn't from her. Uh, my assumption when you first read it was that it was written by her. No, it was by someone I assume to be a Frenchman. Okay, that makes so um, much more sense. That was I was captured. like, how does Amelia Earhart know French and that no, it no, would no. get to France? I apologize. No. It's okay. Um, so, yeah, this person. And then they go on to talk about how their specific um, – their specific situation, how they got captured. Actually, Amelia Earhart isn't actually mentioned that much. So I would argue, if we're looking at it with a skeptic's lens, I would argue that perhaps they included Amelia Earhart as, like... Credibility? No, not credibility, like but uh, to make people give a... <laughs> to oh, give, give a care yeah. about their situation, because who knows about random Jean-Paul Joshmo from France... <laughs> Jean-Paul Joshmo. Exactly, yeah. I will note that this correspondence, <laughs> this correspondence was not declassified until March 1st, 1977. Whoa. That's 44 years ago, yeah. just yesterday at the time of recording. Mm. I will say, though, that maybe is not indicative of anything like in fancy particular. or spy related uh, in... High school, I spent two summers working in a museum, uh, and one of my projects was going through old microfiche uh, because it degrades and can actually be quite flammable. Yep. uh, Which is why, like, uh, in old Hollywood, like, the film reels would just spontaneously catch on fire. Yep. Which is, you know, not great when you have a warehouse full of flammable film. Yep. So one of my jobs was to go through all this old military microfiche and print off the first couple pages so that they would know kind of what's on it and if it would be worth duplicating or if they had it already in the system. However, if I encountered anything that had classified, top secret, secret, anything like that, I had to stop, take it off the reel, put it in a pile, and then go to the declassification vault and get buzzed in by a guy with a a lanyard and then they would take them and I'd get them back like a day later and they'd be like, yeah, these are now declassified. Like troop rations from 1944, no longer classified. So it's possible that this message in a bottle letter just didn't get get, to that point, get noticed until 1977. But that's fair. um, Also, Japanese authorities have told uh, NBC and other sources that they have no records indicating that Earhart was ever in Japanese custody. Which I think is pretty fair. I mean, I know governments like to protect their information, but Japan historically is pretty much an ally to the U.S., so I don't see why they would. Yeah, and also at this point, it doesn't matter. Like, they could say, well, we we did have her, if it was true, we had her in a prisoner of war camp. We have record of that. But uh, see, I think I maybe don't... it's like a celebrity thing of like, oh my gosh, you 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 know, killed Amelia Earhart. How dare it? like I don't know. 
See, I don't, I don't agree that it doesn't matter. Like, I feel like someone with a better understanding of the international politics would probably have a more nuanced uh, discussion. But I feel like, for instance, if it was China or Russia that had had her, either they would have made a big deal of the fact that they had had her in the past, or they would never tell us because they like feeling that they have the upper hand. You know what? That's that's totally fair. That's fair. But um, also. Hate to burst your bubble if you're on board with this theory because basic research, like half an hour of research by some by this one reporter, uh, revealed that this photo in question was actually published in a 1935 Japanese language travelogue about the islands of the South Pacific. Oh. So it is very interesting that the man in this photo and Fred Newton do look very, very similar. Like, they've done computer analysis, and it's a very high likelihood of facial recognition match. But, yeah, this photo is from two years before uh, before they even left on their, their final journey. Yeah. Uh, also goes to show that the History Channel is an entertainment channel. That has a historical bent. They're not actually scientists because literally yes. in the article, this person, it was like, yeah, I searched in this Japanese research database and this was the 10th item that showed up. It took me less than half an hour. Yeah. And then they probably went and made like a two hour documentary about this photo and Amelia Earhart. But yeah, that's why you know. Ancient Aliens is on the History Channel. Yep. Because it's entertainment. So to... I was going to say wrap it up, but that's not quite true. But to wrap up this portion, um, the official belief of the U.S. government is that after running out of fuel, Earhart and Noonan crashed their plane into the Pacific Ocean while attempting to reach Howland Island, which is approximately 946 miles from the Marshall Islands. So where it's theorized she was being held prisoner by the Japanese. And approximately 406 miles from Niku Mororo Island, which is where the sniffer dogs were. Um, in 2002 and in 2006, uh, the deep sea company Nauticos uh, looked for Earhart's plane near the spot where she last radioed. But the plane was not recovered. And I wrote, obviously, we need to get James Cameron on on this ish. Yes. um again if you're interested you can i would check out tiger and national geographic as your first stops because there are a lot of expeditions in various parts of the region looking for amelia Earhart throughout the years i could not go through all of them obviously not no um and then we have a couple more recent news stories that i thought were of note Uh, So a skull fragment that may be from the original skeleton found on Niku Mororo uh, was found in a storage facility in a museum on a nearby island and is currently being tested to see if it's a genetic match for any of Amelia Earhart's relatives. So again, similar to the Tom and Shude case, maybe we'll get some 23andMe problem solving in this future upcoming that's really years. that's really exciting right we love that yes so next we have uh daniel beck he's a pilot who also manages the engineering program for the penn state radiation science and engineering center or rsec 
uh, which is home to the Briazeal nuclear reactor. Uh, he saw, I don't think it's the, the, the Marshall Islands documentary, but he saw a different National Geographic um, documentary about Earhart. And he got in contact with someone at Tiger, uh, and there's a metal panel that's been recovered from the storm debris on Niku Mororo, and they ran this metal panel through a neutron beam. Ooh. Here, it, there was a lot of science that I did not quite understand, but here's a helpful little quote. Okay. If there's paint or writing or a serial number, things that can, have been eroded or we can't see with the naked eye, we can detect those. That's so really cool. So the hope was that they'd be able to tie it to Amelia Earhart's yeah. plane somehow. Um, the article, at the time of the article, it indicated that they were still doing research and they did point out, which I think is a helpful thing to remember, especially for those of us who don't do science ever, <laughs> um, uh, even if they don't find anything of note, it's actually still helpful that they've done this research because it disqualifies that particular exactly. piece of evidence for yeah. for future reference so nobody else wastes time being like, no, it is her plan. They can be like, no, actually, this serial number is for this such and such from 1954 or whenever. Um, So that's cool. So in 2019, so relatively recently, Robert Ballard and his team led an expedition to Nico Mororo in search for pieces of Earhart's plane. Now, Emma, does the name Robert Ballard ring a bell to you for any reason? Yes. Yes, it does. But I don't know why. Oh, well, you may recall that he discovered the wreckage of the Titanic. Titanic. Yes. Okay. Good. All right. <laughs> I knew it. Um, yeah. So Tony has actually been on the uh, submarine that they used to find the Titanic because his grandfather worked at um, Woods Hole, which is the Marine Institute in uh, Cape Cod. And uh, he was friends with Ballard. I'm so mad right now. At least that's as far as I know. Again, I should say nothing with confidence until I get confirmation from Tony. <laughs> well, stay tuned for our corrections episode, I guess. Yeah. All right. Unsurprising. I have another quote from National Geographic. Yay! So, Tiger pinpoints the northwest side of the island as the site of the plane's landing, where a ship called the SS Norwich City wrecked in 1929 and where the island's lagoon opens to the sea in high tide. Three months after Earhart and Noonan's disappearance, a British officer scouting the island for colonization took a photograph of the shipwreck. Various analysts claimed that a blurry shape to the left of it could be the Electra's landing gear. People who lived on the island after it was colonized later told Tigar investigators that they had found aluminum wreckage near the lagoon's entrance. Hmm. So let me share my screen real quick. Share, share, share your screen. Share, share, share your screen. So here is this 1929 shipwreck. But remember, this photo is from 1937. Yes. Yes, three months after their disappearance. So this shipwreck 
was from 1929. They just, like, left it there. Okay. And then this indistinct object here is supposedly, potentially, the landing gear of Ah. Amelia Uh Earhart's plane. Eh. Um, yeah. I think that photo is less significant than reports from native people. Yeah, who later or not native people? I but guess like people we who don't. It doesn't specify, there. but people who later moved on to the island, um, talk about how they found aluminum wreckage, and you can they. One of the articles was talking about how you can tell that they had that as a resource because they used it in their buildings and things like that. So there was evidence of aluminum, but but until we get, you know, n- neutron analysis from whatever. Jimmy Neutron lab. analysis. You know, that's yeah. what it's called, right? Did they yeah, maybe, neutron beam. Yeah. Did they maybe think, did Amelia and Fred maybe think that that wreckage was the ship that they were communicating with? Potentially. I mean... And so they were like, oh, that's that must be the island. We finally found it. Even though Maybe? it's definitely bigger than I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a fair that's a fair point. Nobody mentioned that, but I think under heavy cl- under heavy cloud cover, perhaps yeah, maybe. that was part of the thought process too. Uh, so Robert Ballard used sonar to analyze the island and its surrounding waters. Apparently he circled it like four or five times the island. Um, They sent ROVs, Argus, and Hercules around the island to look for airplane wreckage with the cameras. And these camera feeds were monitored around the clock by his scientists. Um, However, there were no conclusive discoveries by this team. Uh, They did learn a lot based on this 1929 wreck of how uh, debris moves underwater in this particular island's case. Um, So... If they find definitive evidence on land, like DNA evidence, um, with the sniffer dogs or the killer crabs or whatever, <laughs> then they could they could return to the area. And uh, Robert Ballard said he knows exactly where he would continue the search um, Aww, if, yeah. if that returns. And then um, I just wanted to end on this one photo and this quote, which I think just sums up the spirit of Amelia Earhart. Please know I am quite aware of the hazards, she said. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. That's incredible. This photo is also in the National Archives, uh, and it was actually taken before their final takeoff. So one of the last photos of her ever taken. And that, Emma... Ruth and other fellow listeners, including chief archaeologist Tom King, is the mysterious disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Thank you. Very well done. I sorry, it's really long. No, I I loved it. It was so good. I loved it. I I used to so there's always like those morbid fascinations and stuff, and I had like Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Anastasia and all that kind of stuff. But Amelia Earhart was one of those things where I was like, it'd be so cool to figure out what happened to her. And this was so much better than I could have imagined. (laughs) I 
I mean, I obviously I was aware of her. And like I mentioned at towards the top, I had listened while I was working in that museum with the declassification vault. Um, I had listened to the podcast about her. But I I had no idea that the theories ran so deep. That's so cool, though. I love it. So, I, I mean, I guess if I had to pick one, I would go with the Niku Mororo Island I, I, yeah. theory. I think that might have convinced me. But, you know, it's one of those things when it's such a big mystery, it will not be acceptably solved until there is, like, a giant stroke of evidence. So, yeah. We gotta, somebody's gotta go deal with the killer crabs. Oh, God. Not me. I vote not me. Not it. Good Lord. Those things. Tom King, follow up with us about your studies on this island. Oh, I'm so, (laughs) I feel so bad now because he's probably going to be like, guys, stop saying my name. Stop it. (laughs) <laughs> okay, but this is legitimately in the research, so yeah, mine, was, was, mine was justified. Mine was not. I'm just, just being random. annoying, and I'm so sorry. Yeah, annoying, affectionate, same difference. Yeah, we're friends, right, Tom? Right? Right? If you would like to affirm your friendship, whether or not you are Tom King, you can reach out to us on Instagram. Please let us know. Are you our friend? Are, are you? you just a fan? Are, are you just you? a listener? Please. At this podcast doesn't exist. And that's where all of these photos will will be um, as well. And if you have any other theories about Amelia Earhart, if you also know a Tom King, maybe you've been on the, the submarine or no. So I was wrong. He was on the ship that the submarine went from. That makes more sense because he was a kid um, that Tony was on. If you've ever, if, you know get into a National Geographic uh, K-hole, um, let us know. We want to know these things. We want to know all your spooky stories, too. We want to be able to do another mailbag, and right now we have maybe, like, three stories, but we want we want more, and we'd love to make it a Ruth, Jordan, and Haley-centric episode, but we, we also acknowledge that we probably need more friends. <laughs> so please, let us, let us read those. Let us know. Yes. And if you have episode suggestions, please let us know. Obviously, we are listening. Yes. And we will check it out. Seriously. Oh, and you can send those to our email at thispodcastdoesnexist at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, friends. Thank you for telling us, Shannon. This was so good. This was so, so good. You're welcome. And remember, this podcast... I had to do it so quietly. I don't think that worked. Do we want to do just one of us doing it? Uh, no, I'm sh- it, it worked because you're recording on yours and I'm recording on mine. All right. So it's your problem to line it up. Yes, ma'am. Oh, my gosh. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.